Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today, as always, we have a very special guest. Catherine, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Catherine Vaughn. I am currently the Chief Strategy Officer at Swing Left. And before that, I was the co-founder and CEO of Flippable, um, both of which are organizations that are working to flip Republican seats from red to blue um, in service of a better democracy for all of us. Fascinating. We found out about your about both of those organizations, about Swing Left and Flippable. We met um, one of your colleagues at a conference about women in podcasting in November, and we wanted to know more. So can you just tell us a little bit about both Flippable and Swing Left and what's the difference if there is one or if they've become one organization? How does that work? Sure. So we recently went through an organizational merger, so we are all under one roof now, under the Swing Left brand. Our organizations both started in late 2016, early 2017, right after you know the election that affected us all. Swing Left started with a focus on the House, on the U.S. House, and the goal was let's flip the House in the 2018 midterms and let's produce the same level of excitement and energy that we typically see with a presidential campaign about the midterms. And that was a real challenge because obviously, you know, we didn't have a top of the ticket and a lot of people weren't as familiar with their, you know, congressional representatives. Um, there were no tools until Swing Left came along to help you find out whether your nearest district was competitive or to find the nearest competitive district. And so what Swing Left did was create, you know, a real cultural moment around the midterms and provide a consistent experience so that no matter where you were, you could find a swing district near you. And in the end, about, I think, 90% of swing left community members were within 50 miles of a swing district so they could go and knock on doors and learn more about the candidates who were running and fundraise early so that these candidates had a really great running start in the general election. And Flippable, which was the organization that I started with, you know, some of the people that you met, was focused on the underdog story, which was state legislatures. So Swing Left kind of was focused on this big headline news, like there's going to be midterms in 2018 and we need to flip the House. Mm -hmm. um, I think what a lot of people didn't know is that state legislatures also had elections in 2018 and are really, really powerful parts of our overall government. You know, our constitution is written to really give a lot of power to states. The federal government can raise taxes and can regulate interstate commerce, but state legislatures do about everything else. So when you think about things like the abortion bans that have been happening that are passed at the state level, when you think about things like LGBTQ discrimination, which is still legal in dozens of states, even though we, you know, we have same-sex marriage and we have all sorts of other progress on the federal level, um, states are really controlling that. And then I think you know, another really important role that states play is that state houses and senates draw the district lines that will shape both their own districts, which is kind of crazy. You can literally draw yourself into a, an advantageous position, but also congressional districts. So every 10 years after the census, state legislatures are in charge of drawing district lines for the next 10 years. So we worked really hard, you know, both of our organizations worked really hard in 2018 to make sure that this blue wave happened. And that was just for one year. But if you think about the stakes in 2020 and 2021, you know, these district lines that will be drawn will affect the competitiveness of elections for the next 10 years. So we're really trying to invest in flipping those state legislative seats from red to blue for a number of reasons, but especially because redistricting will affect our elections for a decade and because states have control over so many aspects of our lives that are really important. 
I personally, I mean, that's why I have this podcast. I pay attention to my state legislature. I don't always know what's going on in other states. So it's interesting to see someone take that on at a, at a national level. One question that I have is that does Flippable just target races that already exist, like once the primary is over, or do you do anything to recruit candidates and make sure every seat's contested? We are operating in about a dozen states, and we're a very small operation. There are five of us. We just moved over to Swing Left, which is a large organization, but not by that much more. It's about 30 people. So we don't have the on-the-ground presence ourselves in every single state. And I, you know, I think we would be probably stepping beyond our bounds to say, like, we know who the best candidates are in every district. That being said, I think that the fact that our organizations exist is a really great motivator for people to run. So there was a a swing left candidate last year, Katie Hill, who actually found out that her district was a swing district through swing left and then decided to run. And another huge motivating factor is that a big barrier to entry in politics is having to raise sometimes millions of dollars. Um, And if you don't have deep pockets or, you know, rich friends, that can be a really daunting prospect to have to raise money, you know, so much money to even be competitive. And so our organizations, we don't get involved pre-primary, but we are raising money for the candidate who becomes the nominee. So I think that does inspire more people to run because they know that we are working hard to raise money for their district. And if they win the primary, they will have not a huge chunk of cash necessarily, but at least enough to get them going. And that's all raised from grassroots donors, which I think is really important too, that like they don't have to depend on, you know, a few deep pocketed friends. They are really speaking to a wider and more diverse audience of people um, who are supporting them at the grassroots level. So you support candidates both at the state legislature and the congressional level? Yeah. So one of the reasons behind us and Swing Left coming together was this idea that um, you know people were looking for a way to create the most impact possible. And one way to make that easy is to create a one-stop shop for people. So they don't have to go to Swing Left for congressional races and us for state legislative races, that they can actually go to one destination and they can find out, you know, they can learn about which races are really important. Um, They can make a one-click donation to the races that are really important. Um, And, you know, when they're on the email list, they're getting a streamlined set of communications and not having to sign up for like 10 different organizations' emails and, you know, just spend all day reading or archiving their emails. We got a lot of great feedback about that. So our goal for 2020, we obviously are going to have a top of the ticket. We're having a presidential election. Everyone knows that. But our goal is to really support everyone up and down the ballot in a more coordinated and streamlined way. What are the kind of up and down the ballot races that you're supporting or your organization supporting in 2020? Yeah, well, we're actually starting with 2019. Um, There are a few states that are having state legislative races in 2019, and our big focus is on Virginia. So today, the day that we're recording, our organizations are announcing our big entry into Virginia. Um, The Virginia primaries were yesterday, so now we know all of the candidates that we're supporting. There are a bunch of other states having elections as well that are really important. Uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, and New Jersey are also having state-level elections. Um, We're focused on Virginia because of the role that Virginia has played in Republican gerrymandering, and also because it's really flippable. So both the state house and the state Senate are just two seats away from flipping from red to blue. And last cycle, when we worked in Virginia, we helped flip 15 seats. So we know that this is doable. We know that, you know, there's a, a huge promise in, in Virginia. Next year, we're working on 11 super states. 
And that's a term that SwingLab coined that is basically looking at the overlap of really competitive um, states for the Electoral College, so for the presidency, competitive states for the Senate, the U.S. Senate, and then also competitive state legislative seats to undo Republican gerrymandering. And we found that actually the same states keep coming up. You know, there's some of the usual suspects like Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, the types of states that you hear about in talking about presidential races, those are also really important for those other races as well. And then there are other states like Texas and Arizona that may feel like they're a little bit of a farther reach in terms of the presidential, but have really important down-ballot elections there. States like Colorado and Maine as well are really important. So there's 11 super states uh, that we're focused on, and those will have kind of multiplicative effects up and down the ballot. And so when you get involved in a state election as a organization, what are the things that you do besides supporting candidates? So when I think about um, Virginia in particular, uh, in terms of what's happening there, the first thing that comes to mind is Charlottesville and the kind of impact that that might have on people who live in Virginia and don't want something like that to represent them and how that might end up playing into kind of the state politics there. I'm wondering kind of how much do these things have impacts or how much does that kind of affect your organizational strategy in these kinds of weird circumstances that we're having in the U.S. now? There's so much happening in Virginia. I think Charlottesville was a huge, a huge factor in the 2017 elections because it happened just a couple months before November 2017, which was when the whole House of Delegates was up. And I think that there was a huge response in state. So many people saying this doesn't represent us. This is not who we are. And coming out to vote and really making sure that they showed that not just by protesting or that sort of thing, but really coming to the ballot box. There was some really ugly fighting at the gubernatorial level. The Republican candidate in 2017 was using very kind of Trumpian tactics. But I think that pretty resoundingly voters said, you know, that's not who we are. And Virginia has voted Democrat in the past four presidential elections. So it is it is a blue state that has basically been gerrymandered and engineered to have a red state government. But we are we're fighting back against that. I mean, I think that there have been a, a couple other things that have happened in Virginia recently that make it kind of a, a weird story. So there was obviously Everything that happened with the governor and the blackface incident and the lieutenant governor, Mm. you know, allegations of sexual assault, the top of the ballot is problematic. And I think, you know, some people fear that that would be a problem for Democrats. What we're finding is that the type of candidates who are running for state house or for the House of Delegates and for state Senate are among the most diverse. I mean, we had the most diverse freshman class in Virginia's history last time around. We're seeing massive change and we're seeing younger, exciting, progressive candidates who are going to be that next generation and who will be able to step into executive positions and hopefully not have the same level of scandals that we've seen in Virginia. And then I think maybe one last thing that's happened in Virginia recently is the shooting in Virginia Beach. And, you know, that I think has made gun control an ever-increasing issue in the state. You know, this is a state that has a lot of different regions that have had different views toward gun control in the past. There's obviously like a lot of rural districts in Virginia where hunting and guns are a part of life. But I think that Democrats and a lot of moderate Republicans are very united around the need to have some gun control and some changes uh, to how things are done in the state so that we don't have incidents like Virginia Beach again. That's such a fascinating topic because um, we both live in New York and in New York state, a lot of gun crime comes from guns that are smuggled in from Virginia. And so it, it can affect the whole country. 
Absolutely. And that, yeah, that's an argument that we like to make a lot that like, there's so many issues that are legislated at the state level, but that actually don't have borders. Like guns can cross borders. And you're absolutely right. I think Virginia was like the number two state involved in illegal gun crimes in the country. You know, there are other things like uh, Virginia didn't pass Medicaid expansion until 2017 or 2018 after the wave of 2017. And, you know, when you think about healthcare, like health problems cross borders as well. Um, you, you have all of these issues that can't just be confined to a single state. And also, you know, I think there are other issues that are just civil rights issues that we need to fight for in every state. And just because it's not happening in New York doesn't mean that I shouldn't care about it. So what is Flippable doing about gerrymandering, considering Whitford v. Gill and um I'm not going to pronounce this right, Benezek versus Lamone. <laughs> We've seen these cases that were hopeful to kind of strike a blow against gerrymandering were not in the Supreme Court. And so kind of in the wake of that, what can political organizations do about gerrymandering and extreme partisan gerrymandering? That's a great question. So when this episode airs, there will have been some decision in the Supreme Court about this year's cases. And I don't claim to have a crystal ball, so I don't know what that will be. But we are watching the Supreme Court every Monday. They come out with decisions and we're all anxious at our computers at 10 a.m. just like waiting to see what they're going to say about gerrymandering. And it's interesting, Kavanaugh is going to be the swing vote. So I don't even like to think about his name, let alone, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. But there's a chance that he will, you know, maybe in an effort to prove himself or that sort of thing, decide that partisan gerrymandering needs to be reined in and that there needs to be a standard or it needs to be kind of adjudicated in a different way. Um, I think there's also a chance that the Supreme Court will say, you know what, this is not an issue for the courts. It's written into the Constitution that state legislatures draw the district lines, and that's how it's going to continue to be and place no limit on it. And so, you know, I think that either way, um, I don't think that there will ever be a way to get rid of gerrymandering entirely, except maybe thinking about new ways to have the lines be drawn. So like having independent redistricting commissions that are nonpartisan or that sort of thing. But if line drawing remains in the hands of legislators, we need to make sure that those legislators are fair and uh, are not just seeking to accumulate power. You know, the way that we see it, Democrats are not perfect. Democrats have gerrymandered themselves. Menesic v. Lamone is, is a case about that. But when you look at the extremes and the scale at which Republicans have not only gerrymandered, but also suppressed the vote among communities of color and really just tried to keep people out of our democratic process, you know, there's really no comparison. We're trying to get Democrats in office because the track record shows that Democrats have, have done a better job at fair redistricting and at putting in processes that are less partisan. But we're also holding Democrats accountable. And, you know, one of the things that we do is all of our candidates, we ask them questions about voting rights, redistricting, and campaign finance. And we're trying to make sure that we're not just electing capital D Democrats, but we're electing pro-democracy Democrats. So kind of that's that idea of small D democracy and how important it is. Are there any ballot initiatives that have to do with those issues coming up on voting rights or gerrymandering or campaign finance? Last cycle, there were a bunch of ballot initiatives. Um, Michigan, I think, was the highest profile one where this woman, Katie Fahey, who just kind of 
was talking over Thanksgiving dinner with her family about gerrymandering and it was really bothering her. And she basically just started this group, Voters Not Politicians, got hundreds of thousands of signatures to get it on the ballot and it, uh, the ballot initiative passed. So that was just an amazing example of grassroots energy directed at undoing partisan gerrymandering and in putting an independent commission in place so that it doesn't just rest in lawmakers' hands. And there were also ballot initiatives in states like Colorado and Utah and that sort of thing. And of course, the major ballot initiative in Florida around voting rights restoration to formerly incarcerated individuals. So a lot of really exciting action. I don't, I'm not aware of all of the ballot initiatives that will be up in 2020 yet. I think that there's still you know, time to get those signatures and those petitions in. But it's interesting. On the one hand, I think ballot initiatives demonstrate the power that individual citizens can have in changing laws in their government. On the other hand, when you want things to get done legislatively, it's often helpful to push them through the legislation. And so gerrymandering is a tough one. In some ways, it might be better for ballot initiatives to solve that problem, because if a state house or state senate passes a bill on redistricting, you're always going to wonder whether the majority was biased toward their own party. Whereas if it's the people, mm -hmm. it's 60% of the people voting against gerrymandering, you have you know just less suspicion that it might be a partisan move. But with something like automatic voter registration or um, felon rights restoration or that sort of thing, that's something that's going to have to be implemented by state government. And so you kind of want that buy-in through the whole process. Like if you've had legislators voting on this, you know, crafting the bill, getting consensus and finally passing it, I think, you know, you often have a better chance of that being implemented fairly. And we're seeing some problems with that in Florida, not to say that that ballot initiative should, shouldn't have passed. I mean, I'm so glad that Amendment 4 passed. But now we're seeing the Florida legislature basically try to implement a poll tax and make people who are seeking the right to vote again have to pay off all of the fines that they accrued you know, while in, incarcerated. And I think that's a major problem is that we just keep seeing Republicans try to block some of these efforts to restore and increase, expand the vote. Would you care to comment on the, um, I guess, ongoing court battle about the question on the census about citizenship? I mean, this is all interrelated. If we elect good state legislatures, it's not going to matter if the census isn't correct or accurate uh, as to how many people live where. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very concerned and scared about that case. The question about citizenship was, you know, they're trying to put it into the census in a way to continue consolidating power and threaten communities of color and, and immigrants in particular. And and I think that that, I mean, it's just bald-faced anti-democratic sentiment. There's evidence that, uh, you know, they even talked about how this would suppress democratic participation and representation. And so, I mean, I think the way that it would work is that by adding a citizenship question to the census, you are deterring people from answering the census if they feel that they're ability to be here might be threatened if they if they talk to you know government officials and that sort of thing. And so then you get an undercount and you get undercounts in places that have more, you know, immigrants or even whether they are undocumented or people who are here but, you know, just have a distrust of government because of all of the kind of threatening and discriminatory things that have been said. And so you have an undercount which affects representation. So it affects like how many um representative congressional representative states get um, and it also affects federal funding for really critical services that that everyone needs. I think about the implications politically, and that is scary, but I think even scarier are the implications for representatives. They represent everyone in their district, not just U.S. citizens, not just the people who voted for them. You know, federal funding is meant to support 
everyone who is here. And when you have undercounts of people who may need those services the most, I'm, I'm just scared about what that's going to do to the safety net and to helping people who are here thrive and become, you know, really like have a path to citizenship at some point. How can people get involved in, uh, in Swing Left? Yeah, so a ton of ways. So if you go to our website, swingleft.org, you can sign up and get emails and get information. Um, you can sign up to join a group near you. And so if you want to go out and register voters, which is really, really critical right now, or um, help out with campaigns on the ground in Virginia, um, or help out remotely, you know, you can join a group, you can find volunteer opportunities, you can donate, or you can, you know, just sign up right now for emails and then figure out how you're going to get involved later. But, you know, our big emphasis right now is we don't know who our presidential nominee is going to be for at least, say, you know, eight months, if not an entire year. But there's so much that we can be doing right now to prepare for the general. And that's what Trump is doing. Trump is building a campaign and he's essentially running unopposed right now. And so, you know, we can't wait until 2020. If we're waiting, they're winning. So we, you know, there's so many ways that you can get involved in local elections in the national, you know, federal elections and getting involved with Swing Left will point you to the most effective ways to do that. So swingleft.org. And yeah, I think that's what I would recommend right now. <laughs> um, but we'd love to hear from, you know, some of your listeners as to what they're doing, because I think that's that's always an inspiration for us to hear what people on the ground are, are doing and, and to get inspiration from them. Yeah. Is Swing Left on Twitter? Yes. So it's at Swing Left. Yeah, so if you're listening to this, tweet at, tweet at both of us. Tweet at SwingLeft, at FemCoffeePod, and uh, tell us what's going on in your state. Some states have state legislature elections in 2019 and uh, some in 2020. So let us know what's going on where you live. And aside from your website and Twitter, is there anything else you'd recommend people check out to find out what's going on? Or are those the main sources of information? I'm thinking about books. Um, I'm reading a book called State Capture right now, um, which is really interesting and kind of talks through how Republicans took a ton of power through work in the states. One of my favorite books, it's kind of maybe not not okay to say on a podcast, but it's called Rat Fucked. <laughs> and it's about gerrymandering. And then Dark Money is also a really scary book about how Republicans, you know, ultra wealthy billionaire Republicans, Republican donors built this entire kind of network of different organizations, think tanks, PACs, and funneled all sorts of money to Republicans that way. Um, so I think that's, you know, if, if you need a kick in the pants to <laughs> go do something, that's a good book. And the others are just like really helpful in explaining how power works, particularly between state and federal governments. So Ratfuck, Dark Money, and State Capture. Sounds good. We'll link to those in the show notes. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen. And uh, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on our show and taking your time to talk to us and talk to our listeners about what's going on with Swing Left. Thank you. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.